0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. Yes, we do. Um, this is uh, a interview I did with Michael Vischalia, the bass player who's worked with hundreds, literally hundreds of people um, but probably best known for his work with Suzanne Vega during the late 80s 90s and probably beyond and uh, played on lots of her classic albums and toured relentlessly and was the reason for Suzanne having to wear a bulletproof vest during her 1989 Glastonbury concert on the friday night but he'll talk about more about that experience so anyway um yes he was in new york i was in norwich we had a great chat i think we bonded anyway so look after several minutes of casual chat i was talking about um yes the 80s as you do and uh, those classic singer songwriters that we grew to love including tracy chapman michelle shocked and suzanne vega And um, on that interesting note, and frankly, it was fascinating, um, Michael takes over the story. Michael, it's over to you.
1: I I think that um, if I have my chronology correct, I think Suzanne might have been the first of those three. And um, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And um, like you said, Michelle Schock didn't um, really kind of break open very very in a huge way in the international market you know she still has you know kind of a more of a cult following than anything else um Tracy Chapman has kind of more or less disappeared um I think she I think she uh really didn't take to the fame as well as some other people might have I think that might have been I'm just guessing might have been you know her personality didn't really match up with the you know the worldwide acclaim and attention that she was getting Yes. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think what happened, uh, you know, if you look before that, back to the seventies, between the seventies, where you would have, you know, people like, um, you know, Joni Mitchell, obviously was still recording, um, um, Carly Simon,
0: uh, Carol know, Bonnie, King,
1: Bonnie Raitt, Carol King. Uh, yeah. When you have those, uh, females, powerful female performers, um, there wasn't there wasn't really anything um as far as I can tell there wasn't a um a big female um writer performer that had the kind of uh, the lyrical prowess and the singularity of voice that Suzanne had um until she came out in 1985 so there was this little gap mm-hmm. you know where, where I think people were ready for, you know, another sort of Joni Mitchell style singer that was, you know, observational and confessional um, and have a, has a beautiful voice. And, and um, yeah, like you said, when the first album came out in 1985, uh, uh, you know, that was a big, they took a big chance signing her to a major label. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they didn't expect the, the album to do extremely well. Um, they just were you know were thinking of it more like an indie project, and you know if it had sold you know um thirty forty thousand copies, they were going to be happy with their investment you know back in the days when that actually made a difference when you could sell thirty thousand copies <laughs> be considered successful <laughs> uh, so but to their surprise, it sold much much more than that and and spawned the the hit, like I said, that um, that broke in 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 Great Britain first uh, and foremost with Marlene on the wall, and that um, that was the big surprise to to not only A and M Records who signed her, but I think the the entertainment business in general was like, wow, you know, you mean somebody somebody could come out and do music like this, um, which maybe, you know, which may be considered left of center and not necessarily a, um, you know, a commercial venture as it were, a big commercial venture, but be successful. And it was a a big commercial venture. And I think because of the success of Suzanne um, and certainly her, the follow-up record, which was a multi-million seller with Luca on it and Tom Snyder on it, I think that kind of opened the floodgates for, you know, powerful women performers to get back into the scene, and
0: uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting because I'm uh, I'm probably not so sharp on the American side, but I know with the UK, you know, we had that kind of, you know, the beginning of the '80s was a bit scratchy. Then you, you know, we started getting that bombastic sound with you know, like Trevor Horn, and then you know, like I said, there was independent stuff. But then you, then you know, '87 was kind of quite a critical year for music because the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds suddenly hit the ecstasy scene. So they really wanted this sort of latest dance world. So that was like, and each generation wants their kind of like artist, don't they? So you've got, have got suddenly the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays primal screen. And then yeah. after a few years, there was the grunge scene. So it's interesting when you get an album that just doesn't sort of fit anything at all. And you go, well, this is just Suzanne Vega. And I, I remember at the time there was people who probably the demographic who, who were buying that album was quite wide because, there were certain albums that everybody just went back and bought. And there was like Paul Simon's Graceland, Suzanne right. Vega. There was Sade's Diamond Life. You know, it was like people who perhaps didn't buy so many records, but they used to buy. And then they went, oh, actually, you know, I don't really understand what the charts are anymore. I don't understand who Band- Spandau Bally is. I don't like the Smiths. But there's, oh, actually, I this this is quite a nice single. I'll You know, I'll take a punt on this and come and go and yeah. see it live. So um, it's kind of interesting how that works.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it was um, first of all the immense immense appeal of her voice, um, which I think spoke to a multi generational um, demographic, because um, it was so intimate. I um, her voice is so intimate, and and uh, kind of really brings you in to this emotional space that a lot of singers uh, don't bring you into. Yes. I, I think that young people responded to it. i think older people responded to it and then the, you had also had the the um the um kind of the span of the the songwriting, which you know went from maybe something a little more a little more uh, you know um you know metaphoric like marlene on the wall and then you had um you know then you had a um a a, a lovely story ballad like the queen and the soldier. And I think that, you know, I I think everybody's auntie loves the queen and the soldier because it's such a, you know, a a traditional kind of traditional kind of presentation, traditional kind of song with a with a storyline that that, you know, one can follow and see very easily. So I think that it it really did appeal to a lot, a lot of people in different ages.
0: But interestingly enough, because I was looking at various things recently and um, Glastonbury Festival in the 80s was quite a big thing. And obviously it was kind of really alternative. You know, people who went there, it wasn't a mainstream thing. And um, I was looking at some of the lineups, you know, during the 80s, because my first Glastonbury, and it's a writer passage, you know, was 87. And it was like, wow, it was like going into something like Mad Max. It was, I never seen so many people trying to sell me drugs in my life. It was just like, <laughs> so open and so in your face. And you're thinking, blimey, I've never, and it was like, there was all this travellers, con- the travelling convoy and, and people who just seemed to be living in, ditches and hedges and in trucks with dogs and it was a kind of wild place but then in looking at that lineup and i remember you know um i can't remember who was lining up in 87 but then in 89 dear old suzanne was there wasn't she and she she was kind of the headline on a friday night which is you know it's like oh that's really amazing and normally you have what a bombastic band but there you were and you were playing at that concert weren't you
1: I was there. That was actually... Um,
0: but that was quite an interesting one because that was probably the first time I've ever heard someone having a death threat. Now, how did someone as sweet and lovely and as innocent as looking <laughs> as Suzanne manage to, to attract mad well, people?
1: that had a lot to do with me, unfortunately. And uh, if you don't know the backstory of that, um, there was a person that was kind of stalking me at the time, um, I think believing that they, they had more part of, of, of my life than they actually did. And, uh, you know, when that became apparent, I kind of drew a line in the sand and said that this, this is not the case, and let's be very clear about this. And, and I think this person, um, wasn't mentally able to deal with that. Mm. Uh, I think that you know at the time um, you know for better or for worse especially in Britain um you know Suzanne was doing so well that you know she was she was a big star so any anybody like me that was in her direct orbit uh, was also considered like uh you know a pop star as it were because yeah. I was in the band um which certainly um it, isn't and never was the case. But I think, like, you know, the the fan and fanatic uh, line was very blurry with this person. And um, I was the one initially that got the death threat. And then secondarily, um, they made it to Suzanne also, which, which, um, really kind of uh put in place a whole bunch of craziness that day at Glastonbury where we had to you know we had to engage Scotland Yard uh, there were helicopters flying cuz there there were 90,000 people there's no way to actually police you know 90,000 people you know you know in a field so um there were all there was all kinds of security craziness that day and we both actually wound up uh playing the playing the show with bulletproof vests on. So, uh, yeah, so that was the big news of of Glastonbury that night.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I just, you know, I sort of was kind of curious just looking at that kind of lineup, and and there was like Elvis Costello, Van Morrison, the Bundy Boys and Suzanne Vega. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, I'd forgotten that it was, you know, she was a headline, you know, on a Friday night when everyone's literally out of their heads trying to, I don't know, walk into Avalon or some, you know, mystical place. But yeah, I listen, I, there was a very good recording on, you know, I listened to the concert and it all sounds very beautifully presented, even though Suzanne was wearing a very unfortunate big jacket and looked a bit.
1: Yes, as I was also. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was probably noticeable to some people, but um, maybe, maybe as you got farther back into the thousandth person, it didn't, it didn't look so odd, but yeah, yes. we we were, yeah.
0: So when did, you, when did you become part of the, the sort of band and, and sort of going on tour and studio work?
1: Well, when, when the first album was recorded, when the first album was recorded, and that was recorded in New York with, um, you know, a couple of studio musicians and uh, people that, that Lenny Kay, who was actually the co-producer of that record, brought in a couple of his... People to play on it I, I didn't even know Suzanne at the time um, when the first album was done, then it was time to um, uh, put together a, a band that could that could promote the record and play the record so uh, the guitar player at the time, uh, whose name is uh, John Gordon, who's uh, still a very good friend of mine, recommended me because we we had known each other and They were looking for a bass player and he recommended me and I just went down. I met her and her manager and uh, we played through a few tunes and it was a very simple process and they hired me. And that was 1985.
0: Right. My God. So you really did. Because her touring schedule during that period, I can remember when she came to Norwich. She was playing like two nights, two gigs a night just because of the demand. So you must have felt completely, they call it cream crackered. (laughs) Again, it's a quick
1: cracker I know, of... record.
0: I know <laughs> you must have been shattered thing right two gigs a night
1: well it was it was partly that, but partly but mostly I would say very, very exciting because as we toured around uh, once again, John Giddings from um, the solo agency was booking all of all of uh, britain and and Europe for us, and still does and we, when we were making our rounds. We did a, you know, obviously endless amounts of touring in the beginning, going all the way through um, the *Solitude Standing* album. But each time we would come around to the city again, whether it was Munich or or uh, Blackpool, whatever it was, um, the crowds got bigger and they got bigger and and bigger. And it was amazing to see the the rise, you know, of of her. Um, stature and and um the audiences that were really really loving what she and we were doing and that was a a wonderful thing that not a lot of people get to see you know and it got to the point where where by 1987 1987 1988 um you know she was she was headlining you know you know we did um we did Wembley Arena, it had, you know, as the headliner, 10,000 10, people. And that was a very, was probably, the you know, the biggest paid show that she did on her own. Yes.
0: And, I uh, seem to remember, because friends went to this other one, which was um, in Norwich at St Andrew's Hall, where I think it was being filmed by the BBC, and I think it had Lenny Kravitz supporting.
1: Oh, I remember those. I, yeah, you're, you're completely correct. I remember that because i yeah. remember a
0: friend saying yes the support act was you know he was very excitable i'm sure he's going to go somewhere
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's how those things work out huh yeah, yeah so that yeah. must
0: have been i get but that wasn't like a normal support act that was just for the bbc
1: yeah. yeah yeah you know they did um um the bbc and and uh left bank they did a couple of uh documentaries about suzanne during the, the, that period of time
0: with Melvin so, Bragg and Paul Gambaccini,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so she was getting, uh, she was getting quite a bit of attention, and she yeah. even did the Prince's Trust uh, back then, so which was huge. And she did it literally on her own. She's as, as just her and her guitar, which was a gigantic thing uh, for somebody, you know, that played that kind of music to do. But um, yeah, she she got a lot of acclaim back then. Yes,
0: was, and can you remember much about the process of because obviously you were on Solitude Standing, weren't you? On the next album. So what was the atmosphere like? Because because having done this show for quite a long time now, most bands have a five year narrative. You know, you probably get it, don't you? You know, you have the one year, you know, trying to get something together. You you get enough, you know, money. Basically, you put a single out. In this country, we had a various gatekeepers. You know, we had the the three music papers like the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds, and John Peel, who, you know, would give you, you know. If it was a bit quirky or a bit different, he would give it a spin. You get John Peel Session, that first album. Then, you know, like Britain is, as you know, it's tiny. So, you know, every little town and city has a bit, you know, alternative night and people would be able to get in their transit van and go across the country. So there was that momentum for the first album. And then often the second albums when a lot of bands start to have those moments for various reasons and by the third album most bands like you know the writings on the wall mainly because they've just had enough and there's been a complete lack of money but this is a little bit of a different story isn't it because you didn't have that struggle and thinking god i can't do the transit van and unpacking my gear at four in the morning and trying to get it up the stairs
1: well we did that in the beginning for sure that's exactly how we did it um but by the time uh solitude standing came out and and was such a massive success, you know, for an artist of, uh, an artist like Suzanne, such a massive success, things got really big very quickly. And it was extremely exciting. So, so even though we were touring endlessly around the world at that time, um, it was really, it was a very exciting time because uh, we were doing really well. And we were, you know, starting to get, you know, have all the, uh, the, the upper, the upper echelon comforts that one would like, you know, when, when you're a musician is, is touring, you know, we were in really good hotels and we had a a large crew. We had a couple of trucks and we had, you know, catering and laundry on the road. And (laughs) so suddenly the, it became a lot more comfortable to, uh, the to tour and it was really nice
0: so what was your background because I you know I was born 64 so my early formative years were the glam period of the early 70s at Sweet Slade mm-hmm. Gary Glitter thankfully David Bowie was my first single and my first love so it was very much that kind of 70s cliched I was too young for punk but the indie scene came along but you obviously were there you were in New York and you must have had the whole CBGB's Max's Cancer City the Mud Club all that
1: yeah i did um actually i started my first um professional concert tour that i did was in nineteen seventy six when i joined john kale's band It so was very interesting and uh we um that was that was my f- first forays into into playing um internationally you know we came to Europe and we played in lots of places and and, and you know Back in the back in those times, John was um um he's still considered, you know, a a, a very fine artist, but he was uh you know, he had a, a very big a very nice following from you know from his days with um um you know playing playing with Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground, and then going solo and playing with, with Brian Eno and Phil Manzanera and having, you know, great bands that he the big great bands that he had um so he was um that was a really interesting time so yeah so my background um um really came interestingly enough for an american i was really really into the the 60s british and not only the british invasion but even more so into the 60s and, uh prog bands you know the more out there the better you know i was listening to you know, Soft Machine and uh, you know, Matching Mole, Hatfield in the North, like all oh, the, right,
0: caravan, all
1: the, caravan, yeah, all of them. All so, of did them. you
0: also pick up? You know, like Barclay, James, Harvest, yes, Genesis, yeah. Wishbone Ash, oh,
1: big time, big time. Oh, yes, and Genesis, especially King Crimson, of course. You know, those were and and even Gentle Giant. You know, those were like my favorite bands at the time. So, I was immersing myself deeply, hip. That. Yeah, I was. Uh, I myself in, in that world, and, and I was loving it, you know. Yes. Well, interesting.
0: my brother, who's seven years older than me, he was a prog fan. So I've got even the solo work of Rick Wakeman, I have got embedded in my DNA. You mm-hmm. know, when I'm in a care home and my memory's gone, I will remember the work of, you know, King Arthur and Journey oh, yes. to, to Earth the Earth and, and the, all uh, those because. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, the I would sneak into his room and play these records with great yeah. excitement. But then he also had, you know, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and Rainbow, yeah. and and so there was that was kind of what I sneaked in, listened yeah. to, on, you know, on his kind of slipstream, and then I started to you know get into more you know other stuff. But yeah, prog, prog is kind of one of those ones I have a great kind of. Yeah. I was
1: into, I was into Black Sabbath and Deep Purple as well, so and and Jethro Tull and Cream, and you know I was really into the British thing way more than I was into the American thing, which was pretty funny at the time.
0: Yeah, uh, because nine, but then in '77 in New York and onwards, you know, from talking to a lot of people from that period, I mean, you know, the city was looking like a Mad Max scene, phenomenal amount of drugs and and from talking to people it's like well actually it was so everything was so cheap you know no wonder we all slightly got smacked out so being young did you manage to sort of vaguely navigate that period you know better than some people
1: completely i never got caught up in that which was really great because a lot of people that i knew and worked with uh got caught up in that but i did not and i was kind of the uh you know the unicorn in that
0: world. Yeah, well there was a few people who obviously I've interviewed who are alive, but they, they were like you, they just went, no, it didn't agree with me, I, I was just much more into having a few, I don't know, a smoke and a few drinks, but it was never going to happen, because obviously they're still alive to tell the story, whereas everyone else was just dead. Because actually what was quite interesting was that there was a, another little scene happened in New York of, and it was Lee Black Childers who'd bring, brought over some guys from Essex to form some Kind of uh, rock and roll band, a bit like the Stray Cats, but they were called the Rock Cats. Levi, Levi, and the Rock Cats, who were playing at the Mud Club or CBGBs, and 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 had you know themselves taken photographs by Robert Maplethorpe and hanging out with Andy Warhol, which is you know I didn't realize that New York had those other scenes as well. Other than oh, well, yeah,
1: especially especially in the seventies, though New York was to me New York in the seventies was the literal center of you know the cutting-edge culture in the world, and and especially in the music scene, it had these concentric circles of of uh, fantastic and and uh, progressive avant-garde music. Um, you know, starting with um, you know the of course this you know CBGBs and Max's Kansas City scene, which you know all all the um, you know the most progressive artists. In, in the country were we're gathering there um but you also had the um the wonderful you know jazz loft scene that was in New York where you can go see at any you know pretty much any night of the week you could go see Ornette Coleman or Sam Rivers and Dave Holland and you know great great players um and a lot of them were doing like rent parties they had these big lofts so you know you contributed you know whatever money at the door, you know, you could bring in your own bottle of wine or whatever and sit there and watch music and they would just play.
0: And My felt of... it's like a Patreon for the 1970s, because I guess with New York, I mean, it is a sim- it's probably a simplistic narrative, but there was the birth of punk. Right. Um, disco and rap music. That's right. Which is, That's which right. Pretty, which is quite a nice. It's pretty heavy, right there. Right. You know, so you right. had all the main players doing their stuff. They don't, they don't tell Johnny Rotten about that because he would be very upset with you. Oh, he um, like
1: everything is any these days. <laughs> i Already he just lost his lawsuit.
0: I know. We all cried. Oh, Johnny, uh, so sad. Any, I quite like seeing him getting wound up, really. But then, what happened to you then in the early eighties when you were? Were you still working with John Cale at this stage?
1: Now, uh, John Kell was only um 76 and 77. After that, I actually started uh, my own band, which um, got a record deal in 1979 with um, with uh, Don Kirshner, Colum- uh, Columbia Records, his Don Kirshner's imprint. If you remember the Don Kirshner's rock concert, which was all over TV. And uh, we made one album, it did nothing, and we got dropped. And then, right after that, I I joined um, a band with Yorma Kalkinen, the guitar player from Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna. Right. And we had a band for uh, a year or two, um, which were traveling around the United States, and also at the same time, I I started playing um, shows and started touring with Flo and Eddie of the Turtles and Frank Zappa fame. So I played with them for several years and that actually led me right into 1985 where I met Suzanne and started working with Suzanne.
0: Right. So you were almost a gun. No, you weren't really a gun for hire, but you were there, weren't you? I was a gun
1: for hire. Yeah. But I was, I was fortunate enough and, and uh, to keep myself busy and connecting the dots you know, my career to, so that there weren't, there weren't, uh, you know, many uh, terrible gaps.
0: No, because you're, you the output you had with Suzanne, but then also various other artists, because there was another person that I loved. She, I don't know if you played on the album, but that was Annie Domino, wasn't it?
1: Oh, Anna Domino. I did play on her album.
0: Yeah, Yeah. And she did a track called Lake, which was a real favorite in the house that I used to share with a few other friends.
1: She's one of those one of those artists that um, you know. I just wish she, you know, whatever, whatever conspired or came together to, you know, not not make her a bigger artist than than she was. I you know she should be she should have more renown because she's a very very good artist. I remember and a lovely person too.
0: Yes. Um, yeah. I know that was quite something. And then also, you contributed to a, a compilation of The Grateful Dead, and you did a track called Cassidy, didn't you? Um, uh, were you yes, on that?
1: Yes, yes, I think I did. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're you're getting into like the recesses of my my brain yes I think we did do that yeah because it's I, one of
0: my favorite Grateful Dead tracks when I saw yeah. Suzanne I, I yeah. sort of it was one of those compilations I probably had people like You're right. to I help
1: play on that that's correct and yeah. I thought
0: her version was just absolutely magical and um yes yeah, so it, it did it so how were you you navigated you know the next decade because obviously this you know feels like chapters but you Suzanne was absolutely sort of rocking at this stage and you obviously doing other projects as well but keeping it together with, with being with Suzanne, what was that like as you were going into, you didn't have the tricky second album, but as the album started coming out, you probably started seeing the flow chart not looking quite so, things getting a bit more difficult.
1: Yeah, by the third album, I think, um, I think as far as her, um, her career and popularity peak, I think it started to come down a little bit. After the third album, um, and the subsequent albums kept her. Of course, uh, she you know she has she has a very loyal and steady following around the world. But but I think it kind of it kind of uh, went to its own kind of watermark water level um, where she continues to be where she can do you know theaters and, and festivals. But um, as far as like an an, an arena actor. Or shed shed act as they call him in in America, um, I don't think she's got the numbers to do that um, anymore, and that kind of started happening right after the third album. You could see that, you know, there wasn't a hit song from the third album. You know, the rec- the record company was really kind of primed, and all of her promoters around the world, territories around the world, were primed to get you know, anything that resembled Luca, you know how they get, you know, yeah. it's like, give me another Luca, give me something that sounds like that. And, uh, the, you know, and she didn't uh, deliver that. And I think, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, kind of a collective sigh from around the world about that. But, um, you know, she was, you know, Suzanne Vegas, Suzanne Vegas. she was never, she never set out to be a, a pop hit pop artist. She was always going to kind of do her thing, whatever her thing was. And, fortunately there are uh, enough people that respected that that re- that do respect that part of wh- of her artistry and um you know she's she's not the one i mean it would have been great if if uh, serendipitously there was a a big hit song from the third album but um you know there wasn't and that's just the way it goes i mean yeah she,
0: well it's kind of interesting because i say kind of but i mean I, you know david bowie was my kind of obsession in life and it's he's kind of good, interesting by the way it was We're, it was <laughs>
1: he's, my, he's my singular favorite solo artist i think yes. maybe, of all time in rock in the rock world
0: i sort of pick over his life and career and, and sort of continually go back to it and Try and interview anybody who ever worked with David Bowie, which is a bit of a strange obsession, but um, it's kind of it's just a fascinating character because actually I realise there's just no one quite like him. And but it was yeah. interesting that his '60s work was so like hit and miss, and it would have been completely like put in the bin, ish if it hadn't been for what happens in the 70s, you know, because it's like, God, and I can't quite believe, you know, what he was doing, what other people were doing, like the Beatles, the Stones, the Kings, Jimi Hendrix, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he was bringing out these albums that you must find. Mm, interesting. We'll leave that. But then, you know, the 70s happened. But then I always go, th- you know, several things. He, you know, lo- the low album, I just think must have just kind of blown people's minds. And as an artist like Suzanne, she didn't have that kind of particular decade of, you know, like failing miserably almost, you know, and then go, Oh, you've got something here. It was a bit like, wow, you've hit, you know, you've hit the kind of jackpot, of, you know, Las Vegas, but then it's that kind of bravery of just saying, this is an album that no one's going to like, but I love it like low. So it's, it, you know, but then he sort of gets it together, then he loses it in the eighties, then he does some strange stuff in the nineties, then gets it together again in the sort of next period, and then he has his heart attack and then he comes back with two albums and that collaboration with Donnie McClaskin, which was just like Black Star, which is like, Oh my god, that's just incredible so it's like wow i've condensed bowie's life quite quickly now haven't i, I <laughs> but it is an obsession and and you realize that you know artists like suzanne like most of these bands i've done interviews with have five years and then they go basically get a job they've come back 20 years later and they're making a few records but you know like on band camp and you think wow that's incredible you know you had your three albums you did your tour america mostly breaks every band because no one's quite up to america they think it's gonna be good then they tour then they come back going that's when we broke up because it just destroyed us so you know like Suzanne has done incredibly well and you have also kept your life in music haven't you
1: yeah I do I still I'm still very very active um doing all kinds of all kinds of very interesting projects I still play a lot of live music I do a lot of recording um I even have my own podcast now that I've uh that I put in you know, put out three episodes of and working on the fourth. And, um, yeah, so I keep myself pretty busy, you know, I'm always, I'm always like up for the next little challenge, you know, artistically.
0: And did you, I mean, does it mean that now you're not part of the Suzanne Vega kind of world? Well,
1: it's, it's kind of a blurry, it's kind of a blurry thing. I'm not a hundred percent sure. The last time I toured with her was three years ago. We did a world tour and, uh, um, she's she put out um some music where it was uh even kind of a smaller sound and she wanted to use an upright bass instead of bass guitar which is my what I do and uh so that you know that she went in that direction for a while and i think it you know the covid lockdown hit everybody really hard financially and uh and um it could be a thing where um you know, she's doing a combination of, I'm I'm going to be really budget conscious and try to recoup some of the, uh, you know, some money that, you know, I, I wasn't able to, some income that I wasn't able to have last year. And, uh, you know, so it, there's no, there's no like official standing, whether I'm in or out. I've never
0: yes. been. Never and does been, it, I mean, because I always was kind of curious, because Bowie obviously, brought together musicians and formed bands and then sort yeah. of went and did other projects. What's it like for you as a musician, when you find yourself with a new band and a new drummer, then you've got this sort of, you know, get yourself into some sort of partnership and relationship with other people. Does that happen quite smoothly?
1: Um, yeah, because usually the musicians I play with are, are very high caliber, very highly skilled. And it's always exciting to play with uh, another person that, I, I didn't I haven't played with before or played with infrequently, and get to know them better not only as a player but as a person and to me that's exciting because yeah, it um, it brings different d- different energy into you know into the room yeah I, like, I enjoy that
0: It's interesting that, uh, that Suzanne's now playing with is it Jerry Leonard, who was David Bowie's right hand man for the la- latter part of his career.
1: Yeah, well, well, he was Suzanne's uh, right hand man for, I think, before he was David Bowie's right hand man. He's he's been playing with Suzanne longer than he's than he played with David. Right. Um, yeah. So she, he's been an uh, inter- integral part of the uh, of uh, of the Suzanne Vega world for quite a while now.
0: Yeah. Yes, and the other day I was doing an interview with dear old Chris Spedding, who's been around oh, yeah. and played with and just like a former
1: Cal alum, alum, alumnus, right there, Chris. Yes,
0: Bedding. but he's, he's obviously been on some of the greatest songs that have ever been recorded, like Harry Nielsen's. And That's I was saying to him, and Joan Armatrading, I mean, he's, he's got a CV, but like yours, it's like phenomenal. And I was saying, Did you know when you were in the studio and you're, you're putting those records together, any idea? That they're going to be the hit, they are. They're going to catch. And he said, "Not a chance." But the ones that he thought were going to be great never were. What's yeah. your experience like at that?
1: It's kind of this. It's kind of the same. I mean, I didn't. Um, you know, when we were when we were recording Luca, putting that together. Um, you know, I knew it was a good song. I knew it had a cool vibe, and our treatment of the song, our you know arrangement wise, was good. But I never expected that to become the hit that it became, you know, the subject matter is very, it's not light. No. Not light, fair. And, uh, but for some reason it really, really hit an earth. So I don't, you know, I don't, uh, it it is funny, but that's exactly the thing. Sometimes I think, oh, this is, this is like, you know, this is like a write down the pipe for a hit song, write down the pipe and nothing happens with it. And it's like, yeah, uh, the 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 tunes that are a bit like off center are the ones that get the most attention. It's just interesting like that. I don't know, um, I don't know the the reason. I can only conjecture on the reasons for that.
0: Were there any particular songs or artists that you feel, or have felt, sort of a bit disappointed that the work didn't sort of get more promotion or didn't get a bigger sort of audience? That you think, God, oh, they, you know, people have really missed that. But hopefully, one day they'll discover it
1: oh um yeah for sure um uh i think um i think you know um bands like xtc bands like sparks um who are i, I think could have been way better there was a, one of the one of the uh, to me one of the great um american female singer songwriters was a woman named Judy Sill. Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, she died young from drugs, but I'm surprised that her music hasn't become, like, canonized, because I think it's so good. Um, there are always bands like that, um, that kind of somehow or other, for one reason or another, kind of fall through the cracks that I think, uh, you know, could have been, like, the, you know, the next big thing.
0: Yeah, I think Laura Nero is a bit like that as well. Laura Nero.
1: Well, Laura Nero me, Laura Nero's music did kind of get canonized. Um and it was covered by a lot of uh, a lot of her songs were covered by other people that had that had big hits with them. You know, it's the same with like a guy like Leon Russell who wrote like a ton of great great music and, you know, the most success that Laura Nero and Leon Russell both had were were from other artists doing their songs and having big hits with them, so um you know although people don't realize uh that leon or or Laura wrote those songs, I think that the, you know the people in the know know and and the the hits were so uh ubiquitous that um, they become part of part of like the uh you know American consciousness as it were
0: yes, I know I can't remember the hit that um that chap did, but it's one of those amazing oh, Leon Russell? pardon?
1: Yeah. You're talking about Leon Russell?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh Leon Russell. He he did uh he did um he had huge hits with um the Carpenters. Yeah, Don't You Remember I Told Me I Love You yes. He wrote that song. He wrote um Song for You.
0: Yes, which, that's the one. That
1: uh, was a big, big one that um um, everybody, a well, lot, many, many, many people covered that song. You know, he had a, he had a lot of people cover his songs.
0: Yes, and so. one thing, because one thing I noticed with your your amazing CV is that you you have sort of played with a lot of very talented singers, women singer songwriters, haven't you? That's you know, because another artist that I loved back in those days, and I haven't heard from her for ages. Not that she's going to email me, but Dar Williams. Dar Williams is another one who, you know put together some amazing work in the 90s you you played with her on an album which was my better self wasn't it
1: that's correct and and actually I just played with her the other night (laughs) so we (laughs) we still uh yeah um fortunately you know we're still friends and I love Dar and Dar is actually a prime example of what you said I think she is an extraordinary singer-songwriter um she's She's wonderfully engaging on stage. She's one of the smartest people I've met in my career. And um, I wonder why she's not, um, you know, more of a household name. Because she's written some fantastic songs. Yes, no,
0: I remember there was an album, I think, End of Summer, which I think she did in the 90s. That's right, yes. And I think every track on there I know she covers a Ray Davis song as well, but it is absolutely stunning, and her lyrics were just amazing. Well, that's so. it, you know.
1: Her her lyrics are um, extremely literate, extremely emotional, evocative, and uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's no dead weight in there. She really knows how to write a song. Uh, she's actually conducting. Um, that's currently uh, one of the, one of the things she does in 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 addition to performing is that she conducts. Uh, songwriting workshops with right around the country so she's pursuing that and uh no she's she's just wonderful yes
0: so so is there a do do you sort of feel when you were sort of growing up were you from a musical family was it sort of was music part of your household
1: only only through my father my father was a music fanatic he um played the saxophone and wanted to be a professional player. Um, the combination of of, of events that pre- prevented that were that he wasn't extremely talented. Uh, he was talented, but not, he didn't have, you know, the, the gifts to become like a top player. And he also didn't have the single-mindedness uh, drive to do that and and when when he decided that he wanted to when he, when he got married to my mother and decided that they wanted to have a family he he uh he was going to college for music and he decided that that wasn't going to fly um, he couldn't depend on that you know yeah. as most uh, as, as is the common story it's it's a very insecure profession so he he did a um you know he switched over to business, but me as the firstborn i was educated um by him uh, and i was pushed right into the the middle of the you know of everything of like you know it wasn't a matter of, of w- whether i was going to study music it was like which instrument are you going to pick because you're Why? going to study music so <laughs> so that came out an early age and uh you know through a series of events i uh, wound up with the bass guitar and uh, that's where i kind of made my home did you have
0: to have lessons and some direction
1: yeah of course I studied uh, I did a lot of private studies I I didn't go to I started to go to college for music um, but I was so frothing at the mouth to get out there and play and you know get be you know perform and meet musicians I was so excited about that that I didn't stay in in school but I did I did pursue a lot of uh, studies privately with private teachers for for lots of years yeah. yes
0: so in 77 were you a relatively young kid at that stage
1: in 77 i was uh, 23 right uh, i joined john kell's band when i was 22 in, in 1976
0: yes blimey that's amazing so yeah so you wouldn't have really sort of got much of the 60s would you
1: um no not so much of the 60s but enough of it to you know of course you know the Br- the british invasion of the 60s um <clears throat> the latter especially the latter half of the 60s i was way into so i did get that um my aunt who is four years older than me uh was living with us in the 60s and you know she was way you know that was when i first heard the beatles and you know and that you know, of course, that blew everybody's mind.
0: So, what was your first concert back in those days? What was the first kind of concert you went to see?
1: My first concert I went to see was at the Fillmore East. I remember it very vividly. I was um, 14, and um, my friend and his and my friend's parents uh, was, brought us to the Fillmore East which at 14-year-old, you walk in there and the first thing you notice was that it reeked of marijuana, which was, (laughs) for a 14-year-old kid in the 60s, that was pretty wild. Yeah. And um, the concert was very interesting. The opening act was, I think, a 17 or 18-year-old Ainsley Dunbar, the Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was the first act. The second act, they always had three great bands or three bands at a time at the Fillmore. Um, it's one of the treasures of Bill Graham's legacy, putting all these disparate bands together. The second act was um, the group Spirit with Randy California, and, and they were m- most recently in the news uh, because of their lawsuit against Led Zeppelin for "Stairway to Heaven.
0: Yes. Is it, is it fresh garbage? they always saying it's slightly... I can't remember what the spirit song is. that the, It has that kind of riff that, that sounds very much. Oh, it was to... called.
1: Uh, it was, uh, it was a, um, an astrological sign. I can't oh, remember. T- what t- um,
0: Scorp- Taurus. Not- what? Is it Taurus?
1: Yeah, it might be Taurus. Taurus, that was it. Yeah, tourists. Taurus. So, <clears throat> so they were the second act. And the, uh, the headline act was the original Creedence Clearwater revival.
0: Oh, that was is nice. I have a so Spirit was one of those bands I discovered for myself back in the I don't know the early eighties. We you know because you didn't have the internet, you had to go and look at you know these. Uh, my brother had these kind of classic album books or book, and I think one of them was Spirit Twelve Dreams, and I sort of found it in the record library. And and you know because you discover it for yourself, and no one's you know you think God, I've really you know got this classic, and it was a classic. And I decades later, I saw them supporting Wishbone Ash in Cambridge. Yeah. Wow. and this is where you should never meet your kind of sort of heroes but randy was in the crowd mm-hmm. hustling t-shirts saying do you want to buy a t-shirt and i was go no i just want your autograph and he was going yeah but you know <laughs> he was hustling he was literally in the middle of this you know in i don't know if they'd done their set or not i, I probably had but he was trying to sell tour t-shirts and i remember thinking
1: One thing I love, one thing that was really cool about um, Spirit, um, which was way, way after they even broke up, was that their drummer, Uncle Ed Cassidy, uh, still holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the, he's not alive anymore, but he was playing rock and roll, professional rock and roll into his 90s. He was the oldest drummer in the world to be actively playing rock and roll. And i that's one thing I remember about that.
0: God, I, still- I didn't know Ed had, had passed away. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, Paul Randy had sort of drowned. But yeah, yeah. I, I still have great, you know, 12 Dreams is still brilliant. And, and I've got quite a few of their other albums, which are sort of, they've okay. all got good yeah. tracks on.
1: That's very American of you. <laughs> <laughs> Spirit records. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so well, I remember Potato Land was just, I thought was just great, you know. But there was other ones, The Son of Spirit, and there was another one called Spirit of '76, I think, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a track called "Victim of Society," which just has the most amazing guitar sound on it. So um,
1: you do—that's yes, you know more about him than I do. Yeah,
0: there you go, poor old Randy, and he did a terrible solo al- uh, album in the '80s, Euro, Euro-American, and uh, he just couldn't work out what to do with the hair in the '80s because it was like it was so <laughs> out of—it d- was so out of date, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, that was. Uh... That was a weird weird decade for hair, that's for sure.
0: Yes, I know. But look, just last question then, because you have you've phenomenal career. I mean, if you could have said something to your 16 or 18-year-old self, I just wondered if there would be any kind of worldly advice or bit of wisdom that you would have whispered, or even said, actually, this is what I did and it worked out well, so just do the same kid or anything like that.
1: That's interesting. First of all, I would have told myself to study harder, so I would have even more skills than I have today. Um, and I would have told myself to, in spite of, in spite of what was in vogue or in fashion, I would have told myself to really kind of find, which I ultimately did. I, I do, I feel I do have my own voice on the instrument, but I would, I would have been like, find your own voice and stay there. Because I think, I think, um, you know, when people, when artists and musicians kind of chase their tail to be more commercial or whatever, um, I think they're doing themselves a disservice, and Suzanne is a perfect example of that. and I tell people like uh, young artists when they, when, they, when they ask me like, "What can I do? What can I do? That would be that would you know make myself um, a little more you know to get my, my profile out there more?" I was like, "You know what you can do? Be exactly your true self with your exactly truest voice and your truest interface with your art and that 's the most commercial thing you could do, um, and that 's the thing that I would tell any musician and any any artist to be their their truest self and not try to imitate or copy or be like anything else and that 's the most most commercial thing they could do
0: yes yeah it 's interesting because a lot of the artists who had been say big in the decade say in the seventies. The stuff that a lot of them did in the eighties was dreadful. And I, you know, I include David Bowie, you know, yeah. Robert Plant, yeah, you know, Rod Stewart, you know, oh, I know oh, but yeah. you know, there was a lot of people who just seemed a bit lost and went, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. And they said, oh that's okay. We've got this top producer who's got the latest sound. And we've got this and and that, the work that you hear that I know David Bowie's Let's Dance is all right, but then the next two were like, oh my God. And I know Rod Stewart, I remember him being interviewed about the 80s, and he said, Oh, can we skip the eighties? And I thought he was gonna, you know, just didn't want to talk about his personal life. But it was his music that he was like, oh, no, can we just you know, that was not a good decade. We got lost in the eighties. And it's interesting.
1: Well, I mean, that was the, the the you know, other than other than now, I think the eighties was the the most corporate decade of for, for popular music. And you had every suit and every bean counter and every non musician um, administrator and record companies and uh just trying to like figure out how to take their artists and and you know kind of make what whatever might be the most commercial get the the biggest the biggest uh, return on their investment and you know try to figure out how to widen their audience. And I think a lot of that stuff was just detrimental to the artist, you know, and I'm, it's obvious that it was, you know. Yes.
0: Yeah. Because um, I know Robert Plant, I remember him being interviewed, and after Led Zeppelin and John Bonham died, he said that was the loss of innocence, which I always thought was quite a nice line. Did you did you have that moment in 89 at Glastonbury? Did you think, oh, this, is, this has been a bit, too, a bit too weird a journey? I'd, did you ever have one of those moments, the loss of innocence or... Yeah, I'm gonna have to take this. I've
1: had a few of those moments, but it never, um, it never detracted me from my mission to, to be a great musician and to play music. Um, I think as I aged um, uh, over the, I say, I think over the last say ten years, and and um, I feel that, you know, with the the extreme corporate takeover of not only record companies but radio stations and the the extreme pressure and and um, constrictions they have over their over their artists and quotes um, and the sounds that have to come out I feel that there's um, you know I, I don't like to um, wax romantic but I you know I do long for the earlier days when when music and uh, there was more of an innocent there was more you know it was perhaps it was never really innocent but there seems to be there was more innocence and more um more of an organic nature to the creation of music uh which always appealed to me and and that's and i think there was a a, a lot of the growth of music from you know from the six late late 60s into throughout the 70s was because artists were generally looked looked upon as long term investments, not immediate median investments. So so a you know, really good A and R people, really good record companies would be like, Well, you're really good, but I know by your third album you're gonna be phenomenal because we're gonna let you grow as an artist. And right. and most of them did. And most of them got better and better and better as the as the records got, you know, as their careers went on. Um Uh, somehow or other that was just cut short you know uh shorter and shorter um as time went on and now it's you know i don't even i i I don't even i can't even relate to popular music anymore it really has no no resonance to me emotionally so
0: yes it's true it is very true but look michael thank you ever so much for this this has been
1: amazing it's really really nice of you to reach out and i'm and I'm very happy to talk to you, even though we're transcontinental at this
0: point. I know. This is the modern way, isn't it? But look, I'll, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll keep in touch. And if you want, I can always send you the link. And um, you can always yes, that'd be great. on whatever social media websites you have.
1: Thank it's, you so much, David. And good luck with everything. Yeah.
0: Well, you too. And um, it's great. And stay well. You too. Yes, I know. Let's keep, let's keep it real. But look, hopefully we'll see you on tour again soon.
1: Yeah, I would love to do that.
0: And uh, we'll, see. So we'll see. Thanks you. a lot to play for. Take care. See ya. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is how you finish a conversation. I love leaving those bits in for various reasons. It just makes me smile. I'm so sort of fumbly. Anyway, look, that was a massive thanks to Michael Fischelia. I hope I pronounced his name right. If I didn't. Whoops. Um forgive me the time for that interview a massive thank you um this has been david e saw the c86 show if you want to contact me which would be lovely as long as it's positive you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show also all these fascinating interviews have been archived and you can find those on spotify itunes Podbean. there you go anyway look have a great week stay safe